0: Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology, for April 1st to 7th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Raymond Fancher on the English polymath, Francis Galton. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. April 1st. In 1906, the Journal of Abnormal Psychology was first published by Morton Prince. It later became the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, then was purchased by the American Psychological Association in 1925 and resumed its original name in 1965. Also on April 1st in 1960, Thomas Saz's article The Myth of Mental Illness was published in the American Psychologist. For April 2nd, In 1968, Robert Rosenthal and Lenore Jacobson's book, Pygmalion in the Classroom, was published. The book reported the dramatic impact of teacher expectancies on their evaluation of students. For April 3rd, in 1888, G. Stanley Hall was offered the first presidency of Clark University. The university opened its doors on October 2nd, 1889, and Hall's first faculty included Franz Boas, Henry H. Donaldson, Edmund C. Sanford, and William H. Burnham. Also on April 3rd, in 1963, John H. Flavell's book, The Developmental Psychology of Jean Piaget, was published. The book did much to introduce the French-language work of the famous Swiss theorist to the English-speaking world. For April 4th, In 1904, Edward B. Titchener founded the Experimentalists, the invitation-only club that the Cornell psychologists established to counter the American Psychological Association's drift toward non-laboratory psychology, which we heard about in an earlier episode. For April 5th, in 1898, clinical psychologist Morton Prince first hypnotized his patient Sally Beauchamp. He later found her to have three separate personalities, this was one of the first well-documented cases of multiple personality. For April 6th, in 1925, substitute teacher John Scopes was arrested for teaching evolution in his Dayton, Tennessee high school biology class. The celebrated monkey trial followed. Scopes had agreed to the arrest to provide a court test of Tennessee's law banning teaching of evolution in public schools. Also on April 6th in 1956, George A. Miller's article, The Magical Number 7 Plus or Minus 2, Some Limits on Our Capacity for Processing Information, was published in Psychological Review. And finally, also on April 6th in 1970, Lithium Carbonate, an effective treatment for bipolar mood disorders, was first approved for use by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration under the trade names Escalith, Lithonate, and Lithane. On April 5, 1850, a wealthy young Englishman of leisure named Francis Galton set sail on the first great adventure of his life, an exploration of little-known parts, at least to the English, of southern Africa. Although the expedition is not well-remembered today, Galton would go on to become one of the most important and controversial figures in early psychology. He invented the term eugenics to describe a program of selective breeding among humans he proposed, first put forward the idea for what we now call intelligence tests, gathered physical and psychological data on thousands of ordinary Britons, and developed the bases for a number of statistical procedures we use to this very day. On the line to talk to us about Galton's extraordinary career is Dr. Raymond Fancher of York University in Toronto. Professor Fancher, who appeared on our very first show, is the author of Psychoanalytic Psychology, published in 1973 by Norton, Intelligence Men, published in 1987 by Norton, and Pioneers of Psychology, the third edition of which was published in 1996 by Norton. Professor Fancher, well, Galton's probably best known to our listeners as a path-breaking statistician and as the founder of eugenics. Uh, But since we are commemorating his African expedition here, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about this lesser-known aspect of his career.
1: So it was on April 5th in uh, 1850, that Galton departed for uh, Cape Town, South Africa. At that point, he was uh, 28 years old. His life for the, uh, oh, six or seven years before that had been one of, I would call it, idle drifting. His biographer, Carl Pearson, had called them his fallow years. He was wealthy. He did a bit of traveling, uh, a bit of gambling, and generally lived the life of the idle rich. In uh, late 1849, he took the measure of consulting with a phrenologist, presumably, to see how he might turn his life in more productive directions. The phrenologist suggested that he pursue outdoorsy, active kinds of pursuits. And so in early 1850, Galton decided that he would lead uh, an expedition to explore parts of southern Africa previously unexplored. So uh, he left uh, on April 5th, uh, 1850. He returned uh, coincidentally exactly two years later on uh, April 5th, uh, 1852. And uh, in between those two dates, he spent about... uh, probably only about eight months or so of active exploration. But uh, in any case, it was uh, productive. Galton was always very interested in measurements and uh, getting numerical readings and that sort of thing. So he came back with a very detailed and accurate map of much of the territory that constitutes present-day Namibia. On the course of his explorations, uh, he had some interesting adventures, encountered a number of uh, different African groups whom he wrote about. When he came back, he published reports of his expedition uh, really in two forums. He wrote a formal uh, memoir for the Royal Geographical Society of London uh and accompanied that with a uh detailed map of the country and uh for that he was awarded the RGS uh, gold medal for exploration shortly after he got back he also wrote a uh livelier more extended account of his expedition uh, in a book, uh, which he called Tropical South Africa, and between these two kinds of publications, Galton made a name for himself as an important explorer and uh, geographer, and I think most significantly for his later career, it gained him an entree into the the scientific establishment uh, in London at the time.
0: Well, now, what was uh, Galton's background then? He had some quite famous relatives, yes?
1: Uh, yes, he did. Uh, and uh, probably most famously, uh, he was a cousin of Charles Darwin, mm-hmm. or a half-cousin, I guess, to be precise about it. Uh, they shared a common grandfather, the, uh, the famous uh, Erasmus Darwin, uh, who himself was, a, a, of course, a, a major intellectual and scientific figure in late 18th and early 19th century uh, Britain. Galton was 13 years younger than Darwin. They knew each other. They had friendly relations. And uh, clearly, Galton, Admired and respected his, his older cousin. Also, in Galton's family, uh, on his mother's side, his mother was descended from the Barclay family, and uh, of course, Barclay's banks are uh, ubiquitous in Britain today. The family was Quaker background, and uh, so there was uh, quite a lot of money in the family uh, from that side of, of the family as
0: well. Out, long after the African trip, and indeed just after the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in, in 1859, uh, Galton embarked on the projects for which psychologists know him best. He, he began his studies of the heritability of talent and character, uh, culminating in his coining the term eugenics. Uh, could you tell us about that work and about some of the statistical procedures he developed while engaged in it?
1: Well, first, it wasn't immediate. Uh, now, when uh, when Darwin's Origin of Species was published in late 1859, uh, Galton did read it uh, om- almost immediately. He, however, had had no inclination at all that uh, Darwin had been working on this uh, theory for, what, 20, 25 years uh, uh, up until that point. And although they knew each other and had had, friendly social relations they were not scientific confidants uh, at all and so when galton uh, read the origin of species uh, he was he was as surprised as almost everybody else was who uh, who read the book at that time? He immediately wrote to Darwin saying how uh, how much he had enjoyed it and how thought-provoking it was. But it took a, a few years really before uh, it began to influence Galton's own work. Uh, and in fact, for the for the next two or three years, the uh, primary activity that scientific activity of Galton's was meteorology and he was developing the uh, the technique for for weather mapping but gradually the Darwinian ideas and uh, I think a number of other ideas that uh, the uh, historian Frank Turner has referred to as uh, as scientific naturalism were very much uh, in the air at that time and uh, were were being promoted by not only by people like Darwin, but but also others that uh, Galton was coming into contact with, people like B. H. Huxley and Herbert Spencer, the physicist John Tyndall, and uh, in 1865 he published uh, an article entitled "Hereditary Talent and Character." This was the article in which Galton first suggested that intellectual ability, talent, and and character, as he referred to it, not only had a tendency to run in families, which he documented in his article, but he also made the case, or tried to make the case, that the reason that ability ran in families was because it was hereditary. Mm -hmm. And within a Darwinian context, at least as, as he interpreted it, uh it was uh hereditary and it would provide the basis for the future evolution the future development of the of the human species and so implicit in this 1865 uh article was not only the notion that intellectual ability is uh inheritable but also that it might be controllable that conceivably through uh, a process that Galton years later would refer to as eugenics, it would be possible actually to direct course of human evolution. Now, I must say that in 1865, this uh, article was not a terribly cogent or completely convincing article. Galton was one-sided in presenting his evidence. There were some logical Flaws and lapses in it but in any case it was his first statement of the basic idea for what he what he later called eugenics another significant aspect of this uh, 1865 article was that he presented for the first time the idea of what we later came to call intelligence tests and uh, the rationale for this as Galton saw it was that uh, if one were going to engage in a in a eugenic program of selective breeding. It was somehow or other necessary to select the most hereditarily able young men and young women to then encourage them to intermarry and have lots and lots of children and to outbreed the, the more average folk. And he felt that uh, in order to do this, it would be necessary to have some series of tests that might be administered to all of the young men and women, uh, presumably in their late teens or early twenties, so that uh, they could then be identified and encouraged by various means to in- intermarry and, uh, and to procreate at a, at a high rate. And uh, at this stage, Galton really really didn't know how these tests might be constructed, but he thought it was a great idea, and uh, uh, really the idea of the intelligence test dates to, uh, to this paper by Galton.
0: Was it at this time that he began to borrow uh, Adolf Ketelet's idea of the normal curve and suggest that intellectual ability might be uh, distributed normally through the, uh, through the population and that sort of thing?
1: Well, and yeah that that came uh, a few years later uh, after the eighteen sixty five paper uh, and uh, in his uh, eighteen sixty nine book uh, a Hereditary Genius, there he did uh, he noted uh, Quetelet's data on the on the normal bell-shaped distribution of physical characteristics, and uh, he associated this with uh, certain observations that he had made about uh, academic test results or academic examination results, uh, particularly at Cambridge, uh, in, the, uh, in the so-called mathematical tripos, which was the, uh, the very rigorous examination for uh, mathematical honors. At Cambridge, and there these uh, examinations were scored on a on, on really a kind of open-ended marking system, where the the, the highest scoring individuals, uh, who were referred to as wranglers, might get uh, two or three or four thousand marks, whereas uh, an average honours winner might only have a few hundred marks, and uh, basically uh, what. Galton had observed is that the results uh, corresponded roughly to the upper tail of a normal distribution. And so this set him thinking about the, the possibility that intellectual ability, if it could be Measured and in a semi-precise uh, quantitative way, would show itself to be distributed in the form of a uh, of a normal distribution, like uh, physical characteristics such as height or weight or uh, other kinds of things that Catelet had demonstrated. And this was part of his argument that intellectual ability was inheritable in the same way that physical qualities were. The mm-hmm. fact that it Seem to be distributed in the same in the same pattern as uh, known heritable physical
0: qualities. In 1885, um, he opened a kind of public laboratory, uh, which I guess eventually ended up at the South Kensington Museum in London, where mm-hmm. for three pence anyone could be tested on a couple of dozen different aspects of their physical mm-hmm. and mental powers. Uh, what right. sorts of things did Galton measure, and and what did okay. he discover in this research?
1: Right. Well, he he called this his anthropometric Laboratory, and what this really was was his uh, his concrete attempt to develop the uh, the tests of hereditary natural ability that he had first envisioned back in 1865. But first of all, he assumed that probably uh, hereditary intellectual ability would somehow or other be related to Physiological or neurological kinds of qualities. And so the uh, specific measures that Galton included in his anthropometric laboratory, they all had some kind of neurophysiological basis. Probably the simplest of his measures was simply uh, uh, a measure of the head size, because he thought it was plausible anyway that people with bigger brains would have more practical, natural ability. He also included uh, tests of sensory acuity. He included tests of reaction time, again on the assumption that people with faster reactions would have more efficient, more powerful nervous systems. Hmm. And so basically his, uh, his laboratory uh, tested for, uh, oh, some... Fifteen or twenty of these variables, as later developments would uh, uh, would disclose, uh, these particular measures turned out not to be particularly good predictors or or correlates of practical
0: intelligence. And was it also at this time that he began to develop, uh, I guess, the precursors of what we now know as the correlation coefficient and the sc- scatter plot and that sort of thing?
1: Well, at that came a little bit later still, and the main inspiration for for Galton's uh, invention of modern correlation and regression analysis was his desire for a quantitative measure of familial resemblance. It was known that uh, tall parents would tend to have tall children. Um, presumably, according to his own research, uh, intelligent parents uh, would tend to have uh, intelligence, intelligent uh, offspring. Uh, but he was uh, interested in finding some way of quantitatively describing the degree of relationship, and so he began a, a process. Um, that culminated actually quite a few years later in the late 1880s and early 1890s in modern-day correlation and regression analysis.
0: Now, although uh, psychologists know Galton mainly for this sort of work, uh, he was a polymath laying claim to all kinds of things we now take for granted, such as uh, the weather maps that you mentioned before, and fingerprint identification and various things. Could you please tell us about some of those other accomplishments? His
1: his interest in maps and cartography was an obvious outgrowth of his exploring and geographical kinds of, of interests, But uh, in the early uh, 1860s, he had the idea, and I'm not sure that he was the only person who had this idea, of collecting simultaneously gathered weather information from weather stations uh, scattered across, certainly across Europe and uh, large parts of the globe. He then uh, began placing uh, this information, barometric pressures and wind velocities and uh distances and things of that sort and when he did that he became the first person uh at least to to publish uh his discovery of weather systems that rotated in the opposite direction from what had previously been were called cyclones so what today we Uh, we call low-pressure weather systems, uh, Mm. storms. And so essentially, uh, with his development of the weather map, he discovered that the atmosphere is characterized by these uh, interspersed cyclones and, as he called them, anti-cyclones, that is, low-pressure systems, high-pressure systems, uh, rotating in opposite directions. And that it was the progression of these systems that determined the pattern of, of weather across the globe. And so, uh, Galton, uh, then, uh, developed a, a technique for printing some of this information on weather maps. He convinced the Times of London to, uh, to publish them. And so, uh, he's responsible for the, uh, for the now ubiquitous weather map. Uh, you mentioned uh, fingerprinting. Mm-hmm. Um, he got interested at one point in his life in individual marks of individuality, uh, characteristics of of different people that would distinguish them from all other people. This was to be used particularly for criminal investigations, And uh, in any case, Galton uh, was one of a a few people who uh, had the idea that fingerprints might be completely unique marks of individuality. And Galton uh, got interested in this problem, and uh, he developed a system of classification of fingerprints, Uh, into arcs and whirls and other characteristics that very closely anticipated the system that a few years later was adopted
0: by Scotland Yard. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Professor Raymond Fancher of York University in Toronto about the extraordinary career of Francis Galton. Um, Of the three books I mentioned by Professor Fancher at the start of the interview, the one that's most relevant to uh, this topic is Intelligence Men, which was published by Norton in 1987. Professor Fancher is also working on a new biography of Francis Galton, which should be forthcoming in the next year or two. And now it's time for birthdays. First for April 1st. In 1794, Pierre Flourens was born. Flourens is best known for his cerebral ablation experiments on chicks, which purported to show that the brain functions as a whole, not as a series of localized functions. And also on April 1st, Abraham Maslow was born. Maslow is best known for his studies of self-actualization and his hierarchical theory of motives. He was American Psychological Association president in 1968. For April 4th, in 1802, Dorothea Lynn Dix was born. She was a crusader in the United States for the better treatment of people with mental illness. Also on April 4th, in 1835, John Hewlings Jackson was born. Jackson studied the neurology of epilepsy, aphasia, and paralysis. Also on April 4th, in 1840, Henry Bowditch was born. Bowditch opened the first American physiological laboratory at Harvard University in 1871. His work with G. Stanley Hall produced some of the first published experimental psychology work in America. For April 5th, in 1588 Thomas Hobbes was born. Hobbes' social philosophy proposed that people are motivated by self-interest, later called psychological hedonism. For April 7th, in 1859 Jacques Loeb was born. Loeb applied the concept of orienting responses of plants, called tropisms, to animal behavior. He was a significant influence on the young John B. Watson. And also, On April 7th in 1884, Bronislaw Malinowski was born. Malinowski's studies in cultural anthropology contributed to the psychological appreciation of the importance of social influences on behavior and moral judgment. that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, t-w-i-t-h-o-p at yorku, y-o-r-k-u dot c-a. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University.